Imagine being in a seedy part of Cape Town after dark and witnessing a man stabbing a mother while she is holding her baby. Imagine that criminal seeing you, witnessing his act, and him coming for you next. Imagine facing the angry blade carrier, terrified for your life, but not terrified enough to run. And then imagine looking into his eyes, a few feet from yours, and instead of fighting back, you reach out and embrace him. You show him a small token of love that he has probably never experienced. That's what today's Maverick Sports Podcast guest Paddy Upton did. Upton is of course famous for being a cricket coach with the Proteas, India, the Rajasthan Royals, the Delhi Daredevils and the Sydney Thunder. But he is so much more than that. He's a life coach, a leadership trainer, a father, a husband, surfer and yes, a sports coach. Paddy has written a fascinating book called The Barefoot Coach, which is not simply a tale of cricket coaching, but a journey to understand the meaning of life. I'm Craig Ray and it's a great pleasure to welcome Paddy to the Maverick Sports Podcast. Hey, Paddy. Morning. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, that's great. And your book is fascinating. We've really enjoyed going through it. But uh, as I said in the intro there, you're not just a, a cricket coach. And, and, and has your life moved on from cricket coaching for the moment? Uh, yes. You know, it, it, I never planned to be a cricket coach. Um, sort of a, a month before I started my first assignment, and I've had a great journey in the last eight or nine years doing that. And yes, now it is time to, to draw the lessons from that and and continue the journey of life, but away from cricket coaching. But the lessons in, in, in coaching people on a sports field, they seem to me, and going through your book, they seem very similar to to every aspect of life, from business to you know being a school teacher, I guess. I mean, for me, I often use the word uh, universal wisdom or knowledge, um, and that applies to all of life. Um, you know, one can take the, the key principles of helping somebody learn and grow, um, it's applicable for a parent, it's applicable for a sports coach, a, a doctor, a business leader, a politician. So I guess really what, what I brought to cricket was those those universal lessons or wisdom in life that really works. And I'd actually started out studying actually business leadership and business coaching. And I, I translated that knowledge into cricket, which I've applied for the last nearly 10 years in cricket. And now it's a case of you know translating them back into various other contexts. That intro I just uh, explained, just take us through that story and maybe a little bit deeper about your work on the streets at that time, because that was after your first period as a Proteus physio, which was your official designated title, But and you said you found a sort of emptiness at some point around about 1997, uh, and yeah. then you went into... What led you to that night under the bridge? So maybe if you could just give us a bit of background yeah, to that. Um, I, I spent four years actually as the fitness trainer with the South African cricket team under Bob Woolmer and Hansi Cronier. And it was, it was an amazing time. We had seven players then, had university degrees. Bob uh, was at the time and probably still is recognized as one of the most innovative coaches in the world. Hansi was a great leader. Um, and we really had an amazing experience with that four years. But I moved on from that just because I touched an emptiness that – was associated with a world of fame and doing well. I was in my mid-20s and everything was going magnificently. Um, and I moved on from that, not really knowing what the, something missing was, not really knowing where I was going to go, or what was next. But I knew I just needed to move, continue moving in the journey of life. And completely per chance, I happened across street kids and over the period of three years, literally got involved with a fledgling organization and helped lead and build what turned out to be a quite a significant um, and successful street kids organization working with the hardened street children and youth of the Cape Town and surrounds the city center. And that just, I spent two years, literally day and nights on the streets, the streets never sleep, 
um, getting really into the the criminal underbelly of the of of the Cape Town. What happens in the prison system and the, the numbers gang system? How the what happens in the police and the hospital systems and the boys towns and the courts and really got to understand um, that underbelly of Cape Town that I've lived here most of my life, but yeah. I'd never seen and never heard about. And I guess most people, most people even who operate in the city don't even know what really goes on uh, in the, say, the underbelly or the darker recesses of the evenings of, of the Cape Town CBD. Yeah, it's pretty scary. And then, I mean, by working with these children, you, you change lives, I would imagine, some of them. Uh, and and some, I suppose you can't save everyone in this particular incident, um, you know, what was your sort of take on that? Because you've now witnessed a crime you've faced with near death. Just take us sort of a bit further what happened there. Yeah, I mean, that that kind of thing, I mean, unfortunately it happened, you know, it, it wasn't um, a once-off. Um, often late at night I, I happened to be at a at a party for a group of the street kids in um, in Salt River, an observatory area. It was a pretty dodgy area, probably somewhere I shouldn't have been alone that night. Um and sort of well into the evening, I witnessed this incident happen, this um, guy stabbing his girlfriend at the time, and she was using her newborn baby, trying to use it as a shield, and he sort of stabbed around the baby, as, and I watched as a knife thrust into sort of arms and chest and thighs around the baby. Um, and I sneaked off to go and call the police, um, and he obviously saw me, and he confronted me around the corner with this, literally with a knife still dripping with blood, and he said to me, you know who I am, uh, you know what I'm capable of, because I, I knew him and he knew that I knew who he was and what he had done previously. Um, and I, I can't tell you what came over me in that moment. I was absolutely terrified, but I saw straight into, I don't know, I, I guess I saw into him and I, it was almost like I saw into his heart and I saw this really hurt little boy. Um, and instead of running or fighting, well, I had a back to my wall, so I couldn't run anywhere. I reached out and and gave him a hug and he dropped the knife and hugged me back and in that moment, he just broke down and he said, could he tell me the secret that he's been carrying for 20 years that he's never told anyone? Um, and I go into some detail in the, in the book, and it's it's pretty graphic, um, of the secret that he revealed and he um, of what had happened to him as a young kid. And at the end of that conversation, he said, and I thank you for hearing my story. And he set off then to go and kill the two people who were responsible for um, what had happened to him when he was young. Yeah, um, and I must say I didn't didn't say anything to anyone about it. I just let it go, and it's got a, an amazing um, end. That story, um, and I would I probably would never have shared the story had that amazing end not happened. Yeah. Two years later, when I I saw him and he was off the drugs, he had given up his street name, uh, which was not a very pleasant name at all. It was actually given that name to scare people. And he said he went home to go and commit the murder, but he just was overcome with forgiveness. Um, and he never did commit the murders. He cleaned his life up to to a fair degree. He was still living on the streets, but he went home from time to time. So that was one of those really horrible incidents that actually turned out to have a, a really um, yeah, uplifting um, and positive outcome. But that wasn't always the case, unfortunately. But it must have had a profound impact on you as a person and, and what you subsequently went on to do. Um, you know, you went back into sport. Um, and not just that incident, but I'm sure a lot of interactions with these street kids, with, with uh, the underbelly of the city, as, as you've described it. I mean, how much does that, those, might be 15 years ago now, whenever that was, how much of those experiences still play into your day-to-day -day life now? Um, I guess that, that that was probably the, the pinnacle, and when, when I look back on that, of experience of really being fully present 
and completely trusting my gut with a with a whole heap of courage along with it. There have been times on the streets then, and there have been times a number of times in a, in, a, in a sporting environment where something happens that we really don't expect. It's a fairly big moment. Um, and I guess what I've what that taught me to do is not to go into my head and do what I think I should do or someone what what prescribed wisdom of the day suggests, particularly when somebody you know does something wrong or there's a, a significant disciplinary issue. It's to really get fully present to tap into that intuition that we we all do have, but we we often overlook um, and to be able to hear the intuition um, mm. and then have the courage to to go with it, knowing that you never know where it's going to go when I put my arms out and I moved towards that guy. There was no thinking involved whatsoever. Um, but if I was thinking, I would probably never have done that. Well, and, and talking about thinking in sport, and I think you, you, you relate to it later on in the book, but also you, you don't want players to overthink sometimes. Uh, you know, you talk about the coaching, you talk about working on strengths as opposed to focusing on weaknesses. Um, how much of that not thinking comes into into sport now I'll, I'll give you an example the springbok wings um when rusty erasmus took over i don't know how much rugby you've been watching over the last yeah, 18 months a lot. <laughs> but, but we remember the first series against england for instance gianti and and um and Corsi swooped up from the outside and got caught wide and england got around him and scored two or three tries early on in the very first test and the second test was the same thing but rusty erasmus said this is the way we're going to play you wings have got to shoot up we've got to close space from the outside and i don't want you to think I want you to do. Don't worry about the consequences. You will make mistakes. They will score. They will get around you. Don't worry about that. It's all part of a bigger picture. And the picture was by World Cup, they conceded four tries in in seven games and those wings had sorted out their defense. So how much of that, that kind of coaching is empowering the players and then not coming down on them when the mistakes inevitably happen? I mean, there's there's two big concepts you've brought up there, Craig. One of them is uh, thinking. You know, that's probably our thinking is probably the biggest obstacle to our success as athletes and as human beings. Um, so one of the things that athletes really need to do is to be able to manage more successfully, navigate and manage the thinking mind. Now, in the lead up to a game, one does need to think. You need to think through all the things that can go right and you that informs your plan and you think through a couple of things that go wrong and that also informs how you go about avoiding mistakes. Um, but we are we are least effective when we're actually in our thinking brain. Our thinking brain is always either relating back to the past and it's relating to something that's worked or something that hasn't worked. So it's a positive or a negative memory of the past and both of those have impacts on us, but they're actually both irrelevant. A, a good thing that's happened in the past makes us feel good, something that's that didn't go well in the past makes us feel bad or jealous or guilty or sorrowful or angry or resentful or whatever it might be. But none of that is as actually useful in this moment. Mm. The past is only relevant to extract the lessons. And the same thing, a lot of people, our mind is constantly running into the future. It's planning what we want to happen, which is a positive outcome, or what we don't want to happen, which is a negative outcome. But when an athlete crosses the ropes, when a business person walks into that important meeting, um, when we walk into any that's important, we need to let go of any past thinking, let go of any future thinking, and be fully present. And we can only be fully present when we have done our thinking, we've done our planning, and we trust the information that we're going in with. So the example you give in the wings, once they understand that information, they're then able to go into that moment without any thinking of the consequences if somebody gets around me and be able to fully 
see what hap- is happening in the moment and respond in that moment. It's very easy. It's easier said than done. Yeah. Um, and the other thing you mentioned, you know, and that that's almost a, a separate conversation is, you know, one of the biggest problems we have in sports, um, and I think to a fair degree parenting, is that we have a content expert like an expert coach or parent prescribing what somebody else should do. And that athlete or that kid's job is really just to be a diligent little follower of that adult's instruction. And what we do there is we create individuals who are unable to think for themselves. Mm. And that's more so in this day and age than what it's ever been before. It's really not a, a good way to put an athlete onto the field or a kid into life if all they're really good at do, doing is following instructions versus thinking for themselves and making their own smart decisions. Which brings me to your, your coaching, your sort of five methods of coaching, uh, which I guess relates not just to sport, it's in all aspects. And one was instruction. So that's instructional, you've explained. You know, pass the message on, do as I say. Yeah. The second one is advising, and that's sort of suggesting, but that's just another way of instructing, isn't it? It's almost like a, a passive-aggressive way of instruction. Well, you know? not really. I mean, instruction is I know, you don't know, so let me tell you what to do and what your job is to follow my instruction. A little bit more subtle than that is I know, which is suggesting or advising. And mm. the energy of that is I know, you don't know. So let me suggest what you do. But a genuine suggestion or advice, is it does leave it up to you to decide whether you're going to follow it or not. Yeah. So that is the difference. One is you're compelled and the other one you have a choice. And then the third one is mentoring, which is I did this. And then you leave it there and let them take that information on board, which is, which is quite a good one. Yeah. And that also takes a certain type of person, which we can get into in a moment. And then there's abdicating. Um, just unpack that a little bit more. Um, well, with the modern movement of um, you know leaders saying that you need to be empower empower people to make their own decisions, or in sport we call it athlete or player centered coaching, where you want the athlete to come up with the answers for themselves, it becomes easy to abdicate. But when someone comes to us with the question, say, "Well, it's up to you. You go and figure out the answer." So that's not very helpful. It's not really providing any support. It's just saying you go away and you figure it out. So, and as you know, the coach or the parent or the the business leader, I abdicate myself from any responsibility of supporting, assisting, or guiding you to find your own best answer. And then coaching is your final one on that. Now, this all sounds like coaching. So how do you define point five coaching differently to the previous four? So there is an element of all of those four that is wrapped up in coaching, but coaching as a pure process is really one where I help you find out what is important for you and then I helped you go and figure out all the possible options that would work for for your learning style, for your brain styles, for your strengths, and that lines up with whatever it is you want to achieve in your life. Mm. Um, and then I help you figure out what is the best answer going to be and then provide whatever support or feedback necessary for you to go in pursuit of your option and your definition of success in your life, as I said, and how it relates to your strength. So, you know, not every kid, a simple example, not every kid wants to play for the Springbok rugby. But most coaches and most, or a lot of coaches and a lot of parents think that they are coaching to create the next Springbok mm. rather than saying to the kid, well, why are you playing sports? And in fact, we know from research that's been done that when it comes to uh, kids, uh, in one of the studies, kids said that winning was eighth on their priority list and the other study was 11th on their priority list. So even winning is not that important for particularly younger kids. But 
winning is an adult agenda. So we as coaches and we as parents, we coach and we behave on the side of the field and we, be, we behave on the practice field as if our kids all want to win and we impose our agenda for their sport participation on them. When actually, if you ask kids, they, they want to have fun, they want to be out there with their friends, they want to enjoy the camaraderie, um, they love being outside of the classroom and they just want to really have a good laugh and a good time mm. and get some exercise with their mates. But um, how do you marry sort of the, the concept of winning at, school kid level where we're not trying to or you don't want to emphasize that as the main objective and then getting to the professional sports arena where whatever other measurement you use for success winning is the ultimate um, yeah measurement of success I mean we just take the recent rugby world cup the Springboks are the winners England came second they did really well but they don't look like a team that was happy with second so how do you marry that into that sort of thinking how do you produce winners from a younger age if that's not part of the agenda. Well, f- for, for me, it's really defining what is success. So is winning the World Cup success? Yes, it is. But does that mean everybody else is unsuccessful and failed and were losers? And only one team can win the World Cup. It's almost like saying making lots of money is the only definition of success. It's not the only definition mm-hmm. of success. Um, in politics, having the most votes and being in power, does that mean you're successful? Well, actually no it's one very small measure of success so um, yes winning in sport is one of the things but I, I think what's important is to define so what else defines success in sport even if you don't win yeah so and it's the same in business if you don't happen to seal that business deal and make more money than everyone else is there other measures that you can actually um, apply to suggest that actually you've lived a very successful professional or business life in parenting you know if if your kid is not head boy and makes all the a teams and gets straight a's does that mean you your child has failed and you failed as a parent because you haven't got those um measurable successes that everyone else thinks and that's one of the reasons why if i go back why i left the south african cricket team in the 1990s i had all the visible tangible measurable elements of success i had money I was hanging around with famous people. I was meeting the Queen and Nelson Mandela. I was super fit. I was well paid. I had four months holiday a year. That ticks a whole lot of boxes of success, Mm. but it still left me empty. And that's when I started realizing that there's what people, other people had said it a lot of times before, but I internalized it, that there's a whole lot of other factors that um, constitute success, not only just putting the most points on the board or the most money in the bank. Some of those things not necessarily all of them, continual learning you talk about. So I guess that means striving to be a better person through growth in lots of areas, and we can unpack that first. And, and personal mastery, what is personal mastery? But maybe take them one at a yeah, time. Yeah, I, I mean, so if, when I start, practically when I start working with a new cricket team, the, the first thing, one of the first things I would say on day one or day two is I'd ask them where they, where they got their talent from. And after a moment or two of pause, people are generally either say my parents or from whatever higher power they happen to subscribe to, they're God. So then I would, I would explain to them that therefore talent is not an accomplishment. Mm. Um, the hard work you've put into de- turning your talent into the results, you can claim some of that, but you can't claim all of it because you've got coaches, you've got parents, you've got a number of people who've helped you along the way. And I get the players to then go and write down and express the gratitude to those people who have helped them. Um, but even that, so now they're a successful athlete. It says nothing about who they are as a human being. 
And I, for me, it's really important that a top athlete separates out their, their results on the field versus who they are as a human being. Um, and and that can't be easy for a lot of athletes. Well, it's, it's not easy at all because um, people treat them as special people. They get this mm. VIP treatment. They get treated as a special human being. So it's quite easy to start believing that you're a really important and special person, uh, which is that's not the case. And as soon as an, when an athlete or, in fact, any really um, publicly successful person starts believing that they are that special person because they're treated as special as a result of their their talent or their the, the money they've got, that then starts really causing problems for that person later in life because their identity is starts being established on what they are and the people that are friends with them start relating to them and are friends because of what they are, not who they are. And that's where you find a lot of athletes really struggling when they leave the sport because they're now no longer that celebrity. They're, they're not in the limelight anymore. Someone else is standing in that place. And they actually don't know who they are on the inside and the friends that became their friends because they were famous now go off and seek friendships with the next famous person. And that person ends up being really lonely because mm. they don't provide to their friends uh, that reason for being a friend that they did when they were a superstar. And what, what kind of response do you get to that from, from sportsmen or leadership groups, management groups at a boardroom level when you say, you know, it's not because ego, I think we must maybe talk yeah. about ego now. Ego plays a big part in all successful people's lives well we think anyway yeah. from the outside maybe maybe it doesn't but but it seems to me that it's managing the ego is is the key thing yeah yeah so yes managing ego is and i would say you know you ask the question so so what response do i get uh the more mature athletes or businessmen in the room resonate to that and they hopefully that takes them another step down the line of separating out who am i as a person versus what i do as a professional and as, as hard as I need to work on being a better professional, um, and maybe in sport it's getting fitter, stronger, uh, smarter, um, I also need to work on who am I being as a person? What are my values? What is, what is my character? What is the kind of person I want to be remembered by long after I've finished playing? And I actually intentionally need to work on being that good person at the same time, work on being that successful sportsman, businessman, whatever it might be. So those are two different journeys. And one of them is the journey of personal mastery and the other is the journey of professional mastery. And what we're finding in this day and age is, is, is 20, 15 years ago, there were athletes out there who were really not good characters. They weren't of sound values. They weren't good blokes, as we talk about yeah. in South Africa. There were businessmen who were really successful, but when you spoke to people around them, they really weren't respected, they weren't liked, and they weren't good blokes. They were more feared. Yeah, in mm. this day and age, you actually can't, those people are getting away with it less and less because mm. social media is now able to bring that individual's personality into light. If someone behaves really badly in a restaurant or a nightclub, that is, gets distributed now on social media. It gets caught on cameras. So people are getting found out. And you're actually finding athletes. I mean, one of the biggest um, names that that happened to more recently is Kevin Peterson. You know, at the five years ago, six years ago, when he, whenever he was kicked out of the England cricket team, he was undoubtedly the best batsman in that team and one of the best batsmen in the world. But his behavior was such that the England management staff went, hang on, 
we love this guy's runs and he's scoring more than anyone else. But actually his personality and the way he's behaving is more disrupted to the system. So they got rid of him. And they're athletes now. There's some of the, you know, the, the best cricketers in the world that I've been coaches of teams where, where I've said, I'm actually not going to pick that individual. Yeah. Um, you know, when I joined the Sydney Thunder cricket team, for example, they had won, they had lost 21 out of 22 games in, a, in their first three years. So they were down and out. And we wanted to build this team up from the dumps into a really aspirational team. And the first thing we did is we fired Michael Clark and David Warner from the list. because. <laughs> and how many years before 2018 was that? Uh, that was uh, three years before 2018. Yeah. Uh, and it was a very, very unpopular decision to get rid of the, who was at the time. Michael Clark was the Australian captain and David Warner was in one of the top five T20 batsmen in the world. But we knew we couldn't build the team around those individuals. We needed people who were team men. Uh, was very unpopular at the time. Sure. Um, we were, got a pat on the back the next year when that same team that lost 21 out of 22 games in the first three years, the year after we won the Australian Big Bash League without those guys. And we didn't maybe didn't have as talented a team without them, but we had a team that was fighting to be a team. Did the life coach in you not want to try and, I suppose the word is not cure, but help them uh, rather than get rid of them? Um, so... You know, we, we, I'm often asked about how do you manage the maverick, that, that superstar who behaves differently. And there's two things. So in that T20 cricket, we have about five days to work with a team before the first game, and you have a six-week tournament. So there isn't time in that period to really help rehabilitate the way Michael Clark and David Warner were behaving at the time. There wasn't enough time. If we were given a year, two or three years, yes, I would say let's take them on board. Um, and my message, I guess, to management is you don't want those destructive individuals in your team for any length of time. If they're a high performer and they're a cancer, well, they might deliver results today, but they're going to sink the whole body tomorrow. But we mustn't use that as an excuse for our inability as leaders to manage difficult individuals. Mm. So we first need to look at ourselves and say, is this a leadership shortcoming within me that I can't handle this person, therefore I label them as destructive or this maverick? Um, we need to be really, really smart. And if you tried everything and you know it's not my lack of ability to handle a difficult person, this person actually is beyond rehabilitating in this space of time, in this particular environment, because they'll be fine somewhere else. Yeah, for uh, a while. For a while. Mm. Um, and that's happening. So, so the, could you get back to the, the personal mastery is becoming more and more important. That's where contentment, that's where fulfillment comes in. That's where the long-term success, that's the stuff that sustains us as human beings, not just as a high performer. And um, the kind of person we are really does impact other people. And when we need to be working in teams, uh, you want to be picking people who are good blokes. That was the end of part one with this fascinating discussion with Paddy Upton. Join us next week for part two, where we pick it up again. And thanks for listening to the Maverick Sports Podcast and keep reading Daily Maverick for in-depth sports coverage. Now that Rugby World Cup 2019 is over, this weekend we'll be watching the African Cup of Nations qualifier between Bafana Bafana and Sudan from the Orlando Stadium on Sunday. Bafana are in Group C along with Ghana and Sao Tome and Principe. We will also have a keen eye on the Nedbank Golf Challenge from the Gary Player Country Club at Sun City, where 50-year-old President's Cup captain Ernie Els is the oldest man in the field. Remember to subscribe to the Maverick Sports Podcast and to our Maverick Sports Newsletter.